Robert Johnson co-founded Black Entertainment Television in 1979, which became the first Black-owned company on the New York Stock Exchange. He also founded RLJ Companies, a holding company that invests in a number of different sectors. Today, he will discuss the current racial unrest, the future for Black Americans, and the economic impact of COVID-19 on the Black community. Let's listen in. Hey, thanks, Ted. I'm delighted to be here. Good to see you again. I haven't seen you in quite a while. Yeah. Uh, what I'll try to do is to go through the three items that uh, I wanted to uh, bring to your attention to talk to you about, and mostly spend most of the time for Q and A. Uh, that seems to uh, to me, I think, works for uh, best for an organization and a method of uh, communicating like this. So I'll I'll try to be brief. And if I go on too long, just tell me, you know, just join in and ask a question, and I'll break in and answer it. Uh, the the first, uh, you know, I, I will say this: that obviously, uh, and I'm speaking principally from myself and from my feeling about what uh, African-Americans, Black Americans uh, are thinking. Um, obviously, stress would be one of the words. Uh, deep concern, and maybe even fear, uh, when you get into the police brutality issue. Uh, somewhat, um, I would say, doubt about is there a future for Black Americans that resemble the American dream in the long term? And you put all those things in a, in a, in a bag and you've got a very uh, difficult period for African-Americans, unemployment and the like. Uh, and so that's sort of the backdrop of it. I, I think the George uh, Floyd uh, killing as seen on, uh, on media and the way it was executed has sort of uh, been dramatized in the brains of African-Americans. And I I think it's something that will linger, not so much as as it does for each individual, but in the whole 40 million African-American citizenry in the U.S. And and it's gonna gonna color how African-Americans approach the rest of the country for a very long time. And I think if we're going to solve some of these problems, some of that, that pain and in some cases literally unbelief that it could happen is going to have to be erased. I, I don't quite know how to do it, but at least I think that's what the feeling is. And then finally, I think white Americans are literally wrestling with how they try to convey that they're sharing this pain or how they feel they can help solve the issues or problems that cause the pain. And business people are no different from politicians or others who are trying to find a a way to reach out to African-Americans and, and communicate with them. It's, it's a difficult time. And when you throw into the, this pot the presidential election, uh, it's a pretty much um, difficult elixir for people to figure out you know, wh- what it's going to do when it all sort of bo- boils out. And so that's sort of where we are. 
but the three things I want to talk about was COVID-19, not so much the science, because I obviously don't know much about that other than what I hear from the various organizations, but the economic impact of COVID on African-Americans, minority small businesses. And it's a, a simple uh, issue here. African-American small businesses, uh, like most small businesses, uh, lack access to capital, but uh, African-American business lack access to capital in a very significant way uh, that their businesses always operate on the edge of failure or edge of being and not being a going concern. They, they tend to come about mainly through money from family and friends, but unlike white uh, families, their families and friends have so little money, so they end up capitalizing their businesses with a little amounts of money. So when you have a epidemic, uh, pandemic like COVID, uh, causing business to shut down and African-Americans to fall out of work in large numbers, those small businesses lose customers, they lose people who supported them, and they're faced with how do they recover. I have recently addressed this in conversations with Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, and uh, with Jared Kushner, uh, in terms of what programs the administration should be bringing to bear on this particular problem. And the one thing I've come up with is the, uh, the, the fact that loans, as you see in some of the care programs, loans do not work for small African-American businesses. Uh, as I said, they are operating on a thin uh, liquidity edge from the very beginning, and their ability to uh, stay in business uh, depends on a customer base that's no longer uh, existing, either by the fact that they don't have a job or that they are not allowed to to uh, visit and utilize those businesses. So a loan on top of a company that, failing, that is failing or on the verge of failing makes absolutely no sense. So what I propose to the administration is a $1 billion grant program uh, that I agreed to manage at no cost to the government, no fees to me, uh, obviously paying the, the people who would run it, and the purpose of the grant would be something I call a path to profitability. Uh, all companies, uh, everybody knows this, have money that they invest in capital expenditures uh, to get a profitable return on those kind of CapEx investments. This is what I believe these minority firms lack, and this is what I feel they need. So I, I propose to create an organization that would hire young, what I call profitability analysts. Uh, think of VISTA or Peace Corps, but these would be people who have the financial knowledge to walk in a small business and say, how can we help you uh, bring your business up and move it towards a path to profitability? They would then make an assessment, and on that assessment, and working with the owner, they would agree on what would be purchased or that business that would move it towards profitability. Here's the most important point. It is not a loan, it is a grant. However, the grant would not be handed over to the owner. 
The grant would be capital held by the entity, we, we're calling it an SPV, special purpose vehicle, that would then go out and execute the capital expenditure for that particular company. And I use this example when I talk to this to Steve Mnuchin and to uh, Jared Kushner and the people at the White House. Imagine an African-American woman has a beauty parlor. The beauty parlor has been suffering from lack of customers, been shut down by the government and the like, and she can't grow, but she has a lot of customers. So when the customers come back, obviously they want to get their hair done and so on. She has two chairs uh, that her beauticians use, but she has a standing room only of customers who want to get access to hair care. She can't do it. If she had four chairs, she could hire two additional beauticians and generate more revenue in her store. So let's suppose that her two chairs and sinks cost uh, 2,500 each, $5,000. Under the program that I'm proposing, the, the uh, political, the profitability analyst would go in and say, Mrs. Jones need two uh, beautician chairs. We would then execute the purchase of those two chairs on behalf of Mrs. Jones. We would arrange for them to be installed, pay everything up front for the plumbers and everything. She would not be responsible for doing it, wouldn't have access to the capital. We would do it. In effect, Mrs. Jones now, instead of being a two-chair beauty parlor, would be a four-chair beauty parlor. She'd generate more revenue, hire additional personnel, and her business would not be facing a loan where she'd have to pay back the $5,000 grant. That's the kind of money that these small businesses, most of them average somewhere much less than $100,000 on, on par, would, would need. It could be as simple as a, a person who has a, a, a again, a, a store or something, but they don't have floodlights around the store. So at 5.30, 6 o'clock when it starts getting dark, her customer sales drop off because people are afraid to go in the neighborhood to park next to the store because there's no lighting. Again, go out, she'd say, our profitability analyst would say, Mrs. Jones, you could get more customers. And she'd say, sure, if it wasn't so dark, people are afraid to come. Women don't like to come around it because it's dark. We go ahead and we install, buy for her, four floodlights, $300 a piece, $1,200. She doesn't get the $1,200. We buy it from a store. We supervise and implement the install. We pay the installers. Now Mrs. Jones has a store that has a, a traction in terms of entry for consumers who heretofore wouldn't come because we're dark. Now they're going in the store. These are the kinds of simple profitability path, what I call path to profitability investments that this grant program would undertake. And I'm hoping that the administration will include this in their next stimulus package. So that's one thing. The point I'm making is this. Loans will not bring back African-American businesses because they cannot afford them. They need grants and they need focus on where those grant dollars should go to help them move to what I call a path to profitability. And if they get that, their business should continue to grow, we believe. The second issue I want to talk about... Yes. Uh, take questions on that now, yeah. and then move on to the second. I think uh, uh, Gwil York has a uh, has a question. Yes, I am here. Um, my uh, question is: This is awesome. I would like to know 
how you're going to get hire the people to do the analysts. And I can't agree with you more that these uh, this uh, financial uh, support needs to come as a grant, not a loan. Um, I'm wondering if your remarks later on will be able to flush out how you're going to bring this program to life if it's able to be funded. Um, yeah. I'll wait for my response later. Uh, if you want to keep no, going, no, I'll give. I'll get, I think I prefer to give it now, Will. Uh, the uh, the way I would do this, if you think about, uh, all of us remember the Peace Corps or the other U.S. program called BISTA. There are a lot of young people, a lot of African Americans, unemployed right now because of COVID and job. All of them would love to be. Some of them were people hoping to work in the banking industry. Some of them are supposed to looking to work in the finance sector. These are people who would be reporting to a senior level of professionals who would give them the scope of their analysis of a company, and they would then go out uh, and sit down with uh, a person. Again, let's suppose a, a gentleman has a uh, chauffeur service. He only has a sedan. He doesn't have an SUV, but his customers look for SUV. These profitability analysts would sit down and say, what are you doing in your business now? How many customers do you have? How many are asking for SUV service? We build that into our analysis of it, come back, report to the senior people and say, we can buy a, a $30,000 SUV, give it to this gentleman. He has a backlog of customers. He's now moving towards profitability because he's already got the clients. They keep asking for him. He's got to farm it out to some other company because he can't do it, but they'd love to do business with him. So we get these people, much like we got Vista and much like we got Peace Corps, and we try to get them because we want to control the cost so more dollars go towards the, the profitability investments to control the cost by taking a reasonable salary. They'd have to take some salary. And the other thing we can try to do to control costs is when we would buy equipment, if we were talking about lights, if we we're talking about other things, we would try to get the large corporations, the Walmart, the Lowe's, the depots, to say, look, give us a discount on these items we're buying for these particular companies. That, you know, go to a car dealership, maybe we give a discount on the car. And all of a sudden now the dollars, the $1 billion capitalization goes a long way. Of course it does. And I would think that there would only be like 100 types of businesses. I mean, generally for small businesses, it's yeah. not. You know that. Uh, so I was more. I was thinking, well, the business, the business to profit analysts would be able to do this, and it would be very replicable. And then I'm wondering, how many cities are, do you expect it? Are you going to go by cities, states? How do you feel this will roll out? I'm well, looking for that, a lot of flesh on this. Yeah, there's a will. You're absolutely right. There are a couple of things we've got to sort out. You know, do do we go to the major urban areas? Do we go to rural or suburban areas? Uh, the one thing, though, to point out, we will not engage in businesses that are startups. Startups would be off the equation. These are businesses that were operating at some level of profitability or performance prior to COVID. That are now, so they have a history of their financial performance and their customer base. But you're right. The other question is, how do we cap it? If somebody has a very successful business and they need 30000 where there are a lot of people who could get by on 10,000, how do we make a distinction? Should 30,000 businesses, companies get support on this or should only the ones that's small? How do we make the, those are some of the issues we have to wrestle with, but the, the key principle is it has to be in the form of grants 
and the money does not go into the hands of the, the owner. And the reason is it's not because we don't trust them. They worked hard to build their business. But bank loans are bank loans. They got to be paid back. The other part is human nature is such that if somebody has a $30,000 bank loan in their account, and I guarantee if there's a funeral in the family and that family needs $3,000 to get people from A to B to go to them, that owner is going to almost certainly take that $3,000 out of capital, out of their corporate account, make that loan on the hope that they'll be able to recover it before it's time to pay it back. Well, and you're really talking about making sure it's just going for leases of equipment. So anyway, maybe we'll talk offline. Thank you. Okay. Bob, we've got uh, one more question on this before you go to your second point, and that's uh, from Brad Johnson. Yes, hi. Um, as a small business owner, an African-American small business owner, as I've operated businesses in gentrifying communities and, and watch as better funded, um, better operationally, uh, more financial, financially disciplined companies come into the neighborhoods that have been predominantly African-American or neighborhoods with predominantly people of color. Now they're competing against businesses that are better funded, um, have better operational strength. And even if you are providing grants, even if you are doing some of the good things that you suggest, turning on lights or, you know, in certain cases, sprucing up storefronts, if the, if the, the, the acumen of the operator is not such that he can compete on the same level as, as those new businesses, he's still going to get put out of business. How do we, how do we address that? You know, that's a uh, question that has been thrown around in the black community uh, and the white community forever. That I think falls under the nature of capitalism. Uh, this is a free market economy. People have the right to pursue uh, opportunities wherever they live, wherever they want to invest. And, you know, to be honest, I don't have an answer to that question other than to fortify as best I can or best I can propose those African-American businesses who have built up a loyal customer base on quality of service and quality of cost. And, and so I, I think it, it just comes down to the fact that at the end of the day, African-American companies must try their best to get the scale to compete with the kind of companies you're talking about. And without access to capital, growth capital, and, and investment capital, and research capital, and retaining capital to keep the best people, uh, that's going to be a perpetual problem in a capitalist society, and it's not just African American businesses; it's everybody. You know, I imagine a white owner of a small dry goods store probably trembles with fear when he hear, hears that Walmart is coming two blocks up the street. So it's it's something that you can't solve uh, by legislation; you can only solve it by attracting uh, more capital. Okay, Bob, let's go to the next one. I, I got to ask you if you uh, if it was just coincidence that the uh, press release came out today or if you did that to uh, set the stage for what you're going to be talking about here. It, it is coincidence that it came out today, but um, but I've been thinking about it all time. Uh, the, uh, the press release that Ted is referring to is uh, I uh, issued a, a memo to Black Lives Matter and their staff and, I mean, their supporters and released it publicly 
encouraging Black Lives Matter to form an independent Black-oriented targeted party. And I did that because I believe two things. One, I believe that Black Americans have found themselves in a very difficult political situation. Uh, It is a situation where they are often uh, taken for granted by the Democratic Party, Democrat Party, and ignored by the Republican Party. And when you're 40 million people who tend to vote historically as a block in one party, you fall into the difficulty of becoming an appendage of that party and your issues may get buried or subsumed under those priorities of the dominant party that you're in. And this was foreseen uh, by the founding of the Congressional Black Caucus in 1971. The members of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, at that time stated as their fundamental principle that Black Americans should have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. So I believe that the time is now for a Black independent party to address the issues, some of them that have been brought full, uh, brought to the front and with full force in the recent protests and police killings. And Black Americans of 40 million people in a growing uh, more and more diverse society uh, should be able to present to its population a choice. And the choice should not be limited. I think in many ways, no labels is sort of in this same philosophy. The choice should not be limited to two parties. There is nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in any Declaration of Independence. There's nothing in any statute that says this country must always be a two-party system. And so I think with the Black Lives Movement, with the force that it is brought to issues and the motivation and passion of its supporters, black and white, are in a unique position at a time when the two parties are toxically divided to consider forming their own independent party and get into the political process. The other reason for doing this is uh, protests do not last and become sustainable organizations unless they compete in the electoral process in a uh, a democracy. Uh, The the issues will go away. The leaders will move move on. Uh, The the supporters will find themselves being attracted to uh, the normal uh, way of life. And all of this enthusiasm, all of this passion, all of this focus that Black Lives Matter has brought to racial injustice, economic injustice, uh, social discrimination, and others would dissipate. But I think they can carry it on in 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 a party. Plus, the one thing that I am most afraid of, and I think most white Americans are afraid of, is this. What the killing of George Floyd did it brought to black Americans a primal fear of police power to control black uh, life in America. 
uh, as a black man and as talking to other black men, I can tell you, when I see a police car driving behind me slowly and I'm going through a neighborhood that may not be my neighborhood, I have a deep concern. You might not have it because you're white, but it's something that's a primal fear in black Americans. And if that fear gets out of hand and it turns to rage, that's going to create a volatile situation between those folks on the, whatever you want to call them, who feel that black Americans are becoming too pushy, too far, too fast, and those white Americans who believe that we must give way to any and all of their demands to placate them so, so they don't become violent. That is not an appropriate way to run a democracy with 40 million people uh, who are here uh, trying to pursue the American dream. So I think if the party, if the group were to become a party, they have a lot of devoted followers, they have issues that they want to address that are apart from the Democratic Party, apart from the Republican Party. And, there's, and if, if one independent party can succeed in America, perhaps others can. And there's no reason why, like any uh, uh, multiple party democracies, we can have that here as well. Okay, Bob, we've got uh, got a few questions on this, uh, starting with uh, Sean Taylor, and uh, after that, I'll call on uh, Mel Gray. Sean, uh, go ahead. Uh, mine was just a suggestion um, on how to define the scope of the projects, you know, with the grant program. You know, it's one thing to help a uh, small entrepreneur, but the other thing, too, is we need to create scalable jobs uh, in our communities so that the dollars can recirculate, which will help fuel additional growth. I just had this had a meeting yesterday talking about this here in Houston, um, you know, because we need affordable housing. Affordable housing leads to more population uh, then retail follows office space. So in addition to sort of the mom and pop, you know, sole proprietor, um, I would look at companies that can scale up um, in terms of creating a large number of jobs. Yeah, Sean, Sean, yeah, Sean, you're absolutely right. The, the, the two issues there, one is how much money do you think we can get from the government? I pegged the number. I asked for a billion dollars. If I had five billion dollars, I can move into to your arena that you're talking about. On the other hand, if I only got a billion and you're talking about companies of scale, and these companies need, you know, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars. We could find ourselves pushing most of the funds to very large companies, leaving the bulk of minority business, which are small, sort of out in the cold. And but we do have to, honestly, we do have to address that issue. That's a legitimate question. More money solves everything, as they say. But here, if you have a limited amount of money, you got to make trade-offs. Well, so an add-on to that, Bob, would be, you know, I'm noticing every other day individual corporations committing large sums of money, whether it be the historically black universities or businesses, you know, maybe we do some type of matching fund program and yeah. get companies step up. So you'd kind of cut it up into smaller pieces. Yeah, more money. Yeah, I'd love to have more money. If you can get yeah. it, I'll take it. Okay. okay. Now, Greg, you've got a question? And we'll follow that with uh, John Muse. Yes. Hello, Bob. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm sitting here staring at a screen 
on which there are 150 people, give or take. And they're all white. I think I don't see a single black face on my screen. Uh, so that's 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 a gratuitous comment. Um, but we'll keep that just between you and me, Bob. Um, the 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 question was that um, I agree with both your points. I, I agree with point A about the idea of grants to small businesses, and I agree with the second point which is a multi-party system has some real merits. It ain't perfect, as we know. All we have to do is look around the world. We can see lots of problems with that as well. But, but uh, leaving that aside, um, the first point about the grant program, um, to me, it would be very important to be able to um, say to the funders, funder or funders, that out of this program, we're gonna learn something of value. So my, my question is, in your concept of the model, have you built in a data collection feature that we can learn something meaningful out of this effort that can be usable for future reference? Uh, we, this is pretty much sort of a first, first cut, if you will, uh, Melvin, on this. And so we haven't got that far. We're still wrestling whether or not the government can get to the point where they will give grants targeted to uh, minorities. You know, you run into some constitutional questions if it's just targeted. So they've got to do it on the basis of something called opportunity zone or enterprise zones where it's, it's sort of done under the cover of not just creating a, a class distinction and giving out government money. But your point is absolutely correct. And I'm sure if when we put this in place, we will learn a lot about the individual, both, uh, you know, from, both from data and statistics, as well as from stories and information that we'll get about who are the successes and what made them success over others. So it's a great idea and I thank you for that. John Muse. Hey, Bob. Yeah, well, thank you for what you're doing and for joining us today. My question, I think it's um, spot on that these are grants and not loans. I also think it's a recognition by somebody that's been very successful in free enterprise in the United States that we don't fund startups because <clears throat> the failure rate of small businesses, uh, startups is quite high but taking a, a business that has a proven business model that was profitable pre-COVID just needs a helping hand. So would you be willing to create a nonprofit alongside this? Because I think, speaking for myself, I would, I would uh, make a contribution to that. And I think a lot of Americans would. Um, yeah, to, to answer your question. Is it a problem? Is it a problem to do that because it's aiding a for-profit business? Or or could can you set up a nonprofit uh conduit? Yeah, I, I'm not an alongside attorney. Alongside what? Yeah. I'm not an attorney, yeah. uh, John. So I I wouldn't know the actual uh, legal question to answer, but certainly if we viewed it as a, a government private partnership, you could get money from corporations and everything else. Could you get it from foundations who could then get a tax deduction as a, as a donation? I'm sure we can figure, figure that out legally, 
But the answer would be uh, we had not proposed that because we wanted to get the, uh, the government money. And then the question, once you get private organizations, do they, what, what rights do they have? I mean, they become like investors slash shareholders, even though they're not. What rights do they have to monitor, direct, guide the funds? You know, if the government is going to have a mission, and its mission could be enterprise zones, or its mission could be, you know, certain kinds of businesses. Right. Yeah, private companies could have the same thing. I'm not sure how we would manage all of that. But the answer to the question is, I'd love to see that as a as a component of what we're talking about. Well, if you do, I'm in. Okay, I will tell Secretary Treasury we got some more money. You're a good fundraiser, Bob. <laughs> uh, He's a good guy. Let's go on to, to uh, Jared Carney, followed by Andy Gottesman. Uh, Mr. Johnson, hi, Jared Carney. Uh, it's an honor, thank you. And again, echoing the sentiments, thank you for um, weighing in and waiting in. Um, you've avoided the R word, I think, the reparations word. And yet at the same time, grants, I think, could be seen by many as a kind of a proxy um, for reparations. My concern, um, and it's one of those delicate situations that you referred to early where white Americans are kind of have a tough time thinking and expressing um, even support for African-Americans at a time like this. My concern is that the African-American community might see this as too little too late, a billion dollars on a relative basis. I know we've talked about more capital, but you know, um, at a time when the government is deploying trillions of dollars, either uh, fiscally or from uh, the Federal Reserve, do, do you have a concern that, it, you know, it might not actually get the reception that you'd want it to have in the targeted well, community? Well, Jared, you, you've, you've just set me up to go into my third point to introduce, and then we can talk about reparations. I, to, to your question about the number, I propose a $14 trillion reparations. So I think that gives us, a, you know, like, you know, Dirksen said a trillion here, a trillion there, talking about a lot of money. Uh, so uh, we, I proposed a $14 trillion. So let's move into reparations. And I'm going to do this very simply because I really want to hear more questions on this. Uh, I'm going to stipulate everybody here understands reparations. I mean, I don't have to argue reparations. And I'm also stipulate that I think everyone here can, can, rationalize, at least feel, why Black Americans feel they deserve reparations. So we know what reparations are. We know, we think we know why Black Americans, of all the Americans in this country, all 40 million Black people, feel that reparations are justified based on their history in this country. And I don't have to tell you the history. You know that. So now the question you may ask, Bob, how did you arrive at $14 trillion in reparations? I use you know what any uh, accountant would use or or any financial person would use the math to do it like this. I had to start a basis on how do you what do you define as reparations that atones for an economically solved for atonement is more of an emotional thing, but just financial. Here's what I did. Assuming that African Americans suffered economic hardship and denial for over 200 plus years. And their descendants suffered from that and still do if you, some people will argue. So I said, 
since whites did not suffer to the extent that African-Americans did, and they want to atone and repair reparations, let's bring every African-American up to the median net worth of every white person. So the median net worth of a white family in the United States is approximately $357,000. And we computed net worth as income, housing, savings, investment, and the money set aside or cost of sending your children to college, because college is a big driver in income and wealth. And we say that is the net wealth of an African, of a white family. And then we looked at the African-American family, used those same factors, for example, income in a white American household, median income in a white household is $170,000. The median income in an African-American household is $17,000. So we gotta bring that up. Housing, white Americans own 70% of the housing stock in the United States. African-Americans owns approximately 40% of that in the United States. And savings, African-Americans always have almost no savings, very little stocks and bonds and everything else. So when you put all that together, we said to bring up 40 million descendants of slaves up to $350,000 equal, you multiply that times that amount, you come up with $14 trillion. Now, it's a huge number obviously, but that's the math of the number. Now, we also said, you know, no, no government, if, if this thing's ever gains traction, no government's gonna write a check for $14 trillion overnight. So I said, let's pay out this, four, this $14 trillion to 40 million African-Americans over 30 years. That comes out to about $11,000 per year per 170,000 taxpayers in the United States. So every taxpayer would be in on this, much the way every taxpayer is in on the healthcare program. And when you do that over, so the tax, there would be this special, rep, we'll call it a reparations tax of $11,000 that every tax person would have to pay over the next 30 years. At the end of 30 years, at sunsets, no more taxes, that's it, done, and that's reparations. So Bob, I just I have a quick question on that. Is that uh, taxpayers, regardless of uh, race or gender, it's just all taxpayers or is it's, it- It's every taxpayer, including African-American taxpayers, because when a nation takes on a forgiveness or an atonement to repair, everybody pays it uh, without exception as the, the, after World War II, Germans who never were Nazis and were never even born during the Nazi era paid money to for uh, Jewish reparations. In America, during after World War II, the Japanese were put in turn internment camps. People had nothing to do with putting them in internment camps. It was a national decision. Uh, the Supreme Court said they had to be interned. We paid reparations. The United States paid reparations. Everybody was taxed on that including African-Americans and everybody else. So reparations is a national forgiveness, a national atonement. Uh, and even sometimes it's done for political reasons, sometimes done for other reasons. For example, something I found out in researching this is that after World War II, 
French Jews who came to America after World War II sued the French railway that deported French Jews to the German uh, Holocaust camps. And they sued the French train company once they were in America. The French obviously didn't like that. The train company certainly didn't like it. The French did. Americans didn't like the idea of an ally in a spite over uh, their, uh, the French role in, in, in the Holocaust, at least the train company. The United States Senate cut a deal with the Holocaust suit, the people who were suing, and said, we're going to pass a law that you can't sue the train company. However, the French government has agreed to commit $60 million to make you whole. That passed. And the French Jews got $60 million of Holocaust money from, instead of getting from the train company, they got it from the French government. So it's, it's been done. And it's, the numbers is a number, and this is where I'd like to hear more questions. Okay. Is there, we, we are concerned that white Americans, as I said before, I think all of you understand why black Americans feel they deserve it. Mitch McConnell says, I'm not going to pay reparations to anybody uh, who I didn't have anything to do with dying and it's not, I'm not around today. Joe Biden said, I'll be damned if I'll pay reparations to somebody I don't even know. There you go. That's where reparations stand in the mind of at least these two gentlemen. Okay, Andy uh, Gottesman, are you, do you have a yep, question? I'm here. Bob, thank you so much for taking time. And um, I just wanted to let you know that, I mean, you are an inspiration to business people all over the country of, of every stripe. So I, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and before I ask my question, my guess is that, that if you tell Joe Biden you're going to start an independent party with 40 million African Americans, you'd get a different response on reparations. Um, quite, my question is this let's look at the other side of the equation. You've made your case as to, um, why people should pay in. And I ask this question only in the vein of helping you strengthen your own argument. How do you identify really what portion of the 40 million African Americans in the country today are descendants of slaves? Or, you know, many people would come obviously from interracial marriages or otherwise have wacky circumstances. How do you figure out who's really deserving? It's not a matter of deserving. We, we, I, I've sort of dealt with that issue by basically <laughs> and dismissing it. <laughs> the, 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 the position is that any African-American who is here, uh, unless we can show that they're from Dominican Republic or Nigeria or someplace else, is a descendant of a slave. Uh, there's no way you got here other than that your, your ancestors were slaves. You know, they didn't come over with the Mayflower. So uh, they're slaves. And they're, the reparations are due to the descendants of these slaves, uh, all 40 million of them. And if you want to get down into what is the actual DNA of an African-American, we'll use the same DNA that white Americans used during slavery times. If you had one drop of black blood in you, you were black. So that was it is. And we're not even doing the three-fifths of a person thing. We're going down to the one drop of blood makes you black. So technically, a lot of white people who have been passing could say, hey, I'm black, where's my check? So. The, the issue is that, uh, that if we get to that point of deciding, we've got a victory. Thank you very much.
Okay, let's go to uh, Galen Hines and then uh, Brad Johnson. Yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, first, Bob, for uh, taking your time to, to uh, speak with us and really appreciate it. I think the question that I had is that sort of if you look at um, uh, transfers, the history of sort of transfer payments for groups that are marginalized and how those uh, transfer payments kind of over time tend to sort of fade as the, the sort of fortunes of, of those groups go up and down. Um, it seems that as much as anything, the work of economists like Raj Chetty at Harvard, et cetera, is pointing to the fact that underlying all of this is a tremendous amount of segregation, um, economic, racial, et cetera, that sort of is de facto through um, uh, free choice and not necessarily through top-down government decree. Um, so my question is, how do you sort of set up, in addition, kind of the longer trend um, changes that need to happen in terms of racial and economic integration so that when the next recession comes, all of these gains aren't, you know, simply erased again? Well, I, I do it on a sort of a faith or belief that if you start with the notion that white uh, Americans who receive their wealth from the transfer of labor from slaves, they have an innate ability in their DNA or in their brain to succeed and become a successful, most successful uh, free market economy nation in the world with more wealth than anybody, any other country in the world. You have to believe, at least I do, you don't have to, but I believe, that if black Americans were given the same access to wealth supported by a free market economy and a government system engineered to increase capital uh, accumulation of wealth and property, that same would work for African Americans if we are truly committed to freedom, American dream, American exceptionalism, equal treatment under the law. Because when you think about it, the greatest wealth transfer that's ever taken place in this history of this country was the transfer of slave labor to white Americans. And then government de facto segregation, de jure segregation, and denial of equal rights and treatment. All of that prevented African Americans from attaining assets, in some cases that belongs to the country as a whole, than whites. African Americans have no railroad rights of ways. They have no timber rights of ways. They have no mining rights of way. None of that was available to them because of, again, de facto and de jure segregation. You can't read, you can't apply for a radio license. Radio licenses are public airways, belong to the public, but you, we don't, we're not confident you can run a radio station. Therefore, a uh, black person, you can't get a radio station. White people come in, apply, I would like a radio frequency, AM, FM, whatever. I want a television band. You got it. Blacks could not do that. They couldn't go to the FCC and get a radio license. So all of this wealth was passed on, transferred to whites because it was denied to black. Some of the beginning wealth was, was founded by black working for free. And so to me, it goes like this. Money, slaves die, no doubt about it, and so did other people. Money doesn't die. Money circulates. In fact, money multiplies. 
So all of that wealth that was created by thousands, hundreds of thousands of slaves working for free didn't just vanish in thin air. It led to capital investments by the white owners in products that exist all of, in businesses that exist all the way to the day. And many of them you can go back and trace a direct route to it came because I insured slave trips, so I got money from the slavers. Uh, I you know had people work my field. I finally sold that field and land in a little town called Atlanta. And the next day I had you know two thousand acres of land in Atlanta, and on there now is a big bank building, and I got ground lease, and I'm still making money. So these are the things that I think lead to it. But the bottom line of it is. I fundamentally believe that segregation happens because white Americans do not accept as equal African Americans because they do not have equal access to wealth and opportunity and are therefore seen as productive members of society. Wealthy African Americans at a certain level do not see that as much. They still face, you know, police brutality and everything else as some of the as the wealthiest Americans can tell you. But the fact is, their acceptability goes with, sort of increases in direct proportion to their wealth and stability. Jobs, prominent position in corporations, ability to maintain and keep their housing uh, com uh, comparable to their neighbors and things like that. So my thing is, is you give African-Americans $350,000 over the next 30 years, they will become as industrious and successful as whites. Okay, uh, Brad Johnson, you got another question? Yes, uh, hi Bob, and I just wanted to make a, a statement relative to what a gentleman said earlier. I didn't have my camera on, but I am an African-American and I am also on the call. Um, Bob, you mentioned in relative to reparations, I, I heard Mitch McConnell say the other day that President Obama was basically our, our reparations. And you also mentioned that Joe Biden, uh, I don't know when that statement was made relative to reparations, but to Andy's point, um, you know, Joe Biden might be willing to change his tune if reparations were, you know, put before them at this point. But a concern if Black Lives Matter formed a separate party, as you suggested, it's an interesting idea. Donald Trump, and not to put you on the political spot in terms of who you're endorsing here, but if Donald Trump being the opportunistic person that he is, recognized an opportunity to peel away a significant portion of the Democratic stronghold, that being the African-American voter, um, do you not see this, this issue as a, the unintended consequence potentially being the, the peeling off of voters that could go more towards Joe Biden. And again, I, I'm not asking you to endorse a, a, who, who you're endorsing. No, president. no. Yeah, Brad, no, I, I appreciate that question because it gives me opportunity to explain to this. The, the notion that Black Americans are forever locked in the Democratic Party is part of the problem that I'm trying to address. I mean, uh, many of you, or some of you, may have heard, which I think is the most arrogant, but also demeaning statement that any person running for president I've known has ever made about black people. When Joe Biden told a black radio uh, host that even if you have to think about not voting for me, you're not black. I can't imagine Joe Biden saying that to any white person in America. I can't imagine 
Barack Obama never even said that, and he's black. So to me, that's the problem. Our party is an appendage of the Democratic Party. So to your point, let's assume that Trump is as sly as a fox. We also need to assume that the black party that he's negotiating with is just as sly and as just as smart in negotiating with him. So if Trump came and said, look, I want to convince you guys to walk away from the Democratic Party, we aren't going to say, oh, great, thanks for asking, let's go over with your party. We're going to say, no permanent enemies. We're not your enemy, Mr. Trump. No permanent friends. We're not the permanent friends of Vice President Biden. Permanent interest. Put your interests on the table. Here's what we want from you. We want this, 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 that. You're going to give us that? If he says no, we say, you don't get our votes. We vote, as an in we vote our independent interests in a party. Uh, we, we can move the House this way if we get this many people in the House. If we get this member of the Senate, we can move the Senate this way. Move it your way or we can move it the other way. Give us what we want. We got leverage now. Black Americans today do not have leverage. 40 million Americans in this country have no leverage. And I can sure if you talk to the Black Lives Matter people, they have at least 16 or 17 items that they would love to see in the Democratic Party platform that will never get there. But if they go to Republicans and say, we want this and that, and they put it in there and they move it, they have done what blacks have never been able to do, show force, show leverage. Until we start showing leverage, we will always be in the position, as I said, taken for granted by one party and ignored by the other. You know, I, I guess I, I would have one. Bob, you know, what, what do you, what gives you the most hope about the future of uh, in, improvement in, in the race relations that, uh, that we're all facing right now? Well, that is a very, very tough question. And I have a difficulty giving you an answer, but I'll, I'll tell you why it's tough for me. I did a lot of research on income inequality between black and white Americans. And one of the uh, organizations I went to often was the Pew Research Firm. And in doing my studies, Pew came out with a conclusion that said this. It said, children whose families were solidly middle class in the 60s and 70s will never attain the wealth of their parents. You think about that. Children of the parents who were solidly middle class in the 60s and 70s, and this was about five years ago they came out with this study, five, six years, will never attain the wealth of their parents. That means black wealth is regressing. So if the children are not going to change, then the next group, the grandchildren, are in worse shape. So I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out what changes the paradigm. And when I talk about this question of wealth, I use a simple analogy. Ted, you're $170,000. I'm at $17,000 in net income income. 
you're running or advancing in your income at five times a year. I'm running at the same time five times a year, but I'm 10 years behind you. I will never catch you. That's the problem. I don't see a mechanism that allows African-Americans to become economically equal to white Americans without some government intrusion that either does one or two things. It either holds white Americans back, which is not gonna happen in a free market economy, can't happen, or you propel African-Americans forward at a faster pace in terms of access, which means you're going up against what was uh, a, out in Colorado, Trick, there was a court case where an African-American was given the right to, in a bid, to, supposedly a bid, to install guardrails on the highways in Colorado. It went to the Supreme Court, they will call the Adirond decision, the company was Adirond. It was defeated that the, the, the plaintiffs charged that this was a special favor set aside for an African-American and therefore uh, unconstitutional. In that court case decided five to four, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was then on the court, ruled that you could not create special programs based on race unless you could prove a compelling national interest. We certainly couldn't prove a compelling national interest on stalling garbage. So they lost the case. That impacted affirmative action laws across states all across the country, that, that ruling. So my point is, Ted, I don't see the levers that you can pull unless we can come to a ruling that says it is a compelling national interest to move capital because that's where it comes. Education, it's a 30-year train ride to get to where you're going to. And we've spent trillions of dollars on education and you still got African-Americans graduating less than whites out of high school, less out of college, and, and, and so on and so forth. That's only to the recent years that we got African-American unemployment somewhat close to 4% and therefore close to whites at 2%. But it's always had that gap and it still always had that gap. Uh, so I just, don't, I just don't see the the political levels, and particularly in a divisive two-party system like this, I don't see the levers in a capitalist society that values most of all a work ethic that say, you take risk and you get rewards. If you don't take risk, you don't have the capital to take the risk, you do not get the reward. That's tough, but that's how we build this nation and that's how we will govern this nation in perpetuity. And three, I don't see the emotional heart in white America to step up and say American exceptionalism doesn't, has no meaning unless we repair what we have done to African Americans over many generations. And if that doesn't, if that happens, then all this other stuff can go away and people start doing it. You see some of it today and people dribbling out 100,000 to Urban League, 100,000 to the Legal Defense Fund, 100,000. That's, I don't want to call it guilt money. They really hope it'll come out and be meaningful. But ladies and gentlemen, this is a country that is set up this way. Uh, 
and it's probably the greatest country for uh, people in the world, including myself and, and other minorities. But it, I don't see what makes this issue of racial separatism go away. This was said, I mean, what's happening now was echoed in the Kerner Commission report in the 1960 riots. It said, we are moving towards two societies in one nation, separate and unequal. Now, if that was some, you know, 45, 60 years ago, if you can't solve it, then I'm not the guy to give you the answer. So, but, I, but I'll keep trying. Thanks, Bob. Let's let Bill wrap it up. Yep. Well, uh, Mr. Johnson, I think I speak for this entire large group when I say we're grateful for your time, uh, your candor, and your vision. Uh, I think you've expanded everybody's horizons. You've challenged everybody to think bigger and better. Uh, and you've planted some seeds today. Uh, I don't know what they're going to grow into, uh, but the ground is fertile. Uh, and you're talking to a group of people uh, who put country above party. This is the, uh, this is an organization with you know a political purpose, but it's not a partisan organization. Uh, and we we very much want to serve as a vehicle for getting the two political parties together around ideas that can make a difference. That's the business that we're in. It is the business that we have chosen. Uh, and you know, just echoing how you concluded, it is long, hard work. But you know, we do it in the hope that it will make a difference. Uh, and so I conclude on a note of hope, uh, even though your analysis has led you to a place other than hope for reasons I think we can all understand. So once again, thank you very much. This has been an important afternoon for all of us. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening. Robert Johnson contends that the killing of George Floyd and police brutality will shape the attitude of black Americans towards this country for some time to come, specifically their place in either political party. He also notes that businesses run by black Americans often hover on the edge of financial failure, and he believes minority-owned businesses need a lot more help than they have been getting from the federal government. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.